in the book of James chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, and going through verse 18, we have six verses. And in those six verses, the word pray or prayer is mentioned seven times. It begins in the 13th verse by saying, if any, is there any afflicted, let him pray. Now, the word afflicted here means that the sickness or the problem that's under consideration is more than just a, an average type of sickness. It's a, it's a serious problem. If there's any afflicted, let him pray. But if there's any merry, let him sing hymns. And that might seem to be out of place here, but it's not. You see, life is a balance. Life is about ups and downs. And sometimes we have afflictions, and sometimes we can be merry. We, can, we just can't be merry all the time. I'd like to be merry all the time, wouldn't you? I really would. But I haven't been, and I don't anticipate I will be. But I don't want to be afflicted all the time either. But you read over here in the book of Acts where Paul and Silas was in prison. And at midnight, now prior to being put into prison, they were beaten. They were suffering affliction. And while they're in prison uh, and they're chained, the clock strikes midnight. So what are Paul and Silas doing at midnight? They begin to sing. They're merry. <laughs> you might think, well, it's hard to be merry in a situation like that, but, but they were. They were singing praise unto the Lord, and this eventually led to their miraculous deliverance. If any be sick, or, uh, sick, let him call for the elders of the church, who shall come and lay hands upon them and anoint him with oil. There's nothing supernatural about this. Um, this is just a, a culture of the day. The, the oil oftentimes was used like a medicine, etc. And in addition to prayer, the Lord's just telling me here, do everything else that you, you know to do. And he says, if he, uh, for the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, it says he shall be forgiven. Then it says, confess your faults one to another. And the word fault here goes a little deeper than it might appear on the surface. It actually has... Uh, someone who's involved in some type of error. It could be unintentional. It might be intentional. But anyway, to confess your faults one to another, you have to realize you have some. And there's some people, I think, that have never come to that realization yet. But James says, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another. It says, and you shall be healed for the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias was a man of like passions like as we are, yet he prayed that it would not rain. It didn't rain for a span of time of three years and six months. That's three and a half years. Then the Bible says he prayed again. Another prayer that it would rain, and it did rain. So the, uh, the James tells us here concerning the kind of prayer I'm talking about, the kind of prayer I'm talking about is when you pray in your prayer, when you pray in your prayer to God. It's really coming from the soul down deep. Notice what he says. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So we're talking about a prayer of a man that is righteous. Now the word righteous sometimes has reference to our state in Christ. By nature, we're not righteous. By nature, we're unrighteous. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, we've been made righteous. All the elect family of God has been made righteous. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, Paul says, For Christ himself was made to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In other words, the righteousness of Christ was charged and imputed to the elect family of God as Christ took the sins of all the elect family of God in his own body to the tree of the cross, and there he put them away as far as the east from the west. In Matthew chapter 25, those sheep on the right hand of Christ, Christ will tell them, Come, you blessed of my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared you from the foundation of the world. And then the Bible says, And the righteous, these ones that he put on the right hand who are the sheep, are referred to as the righteous. That applies to every member of God's family. But sometimes the word righteous has reference to character. And that's the way it is right here. The effectual, the word effectual means effective. Now we use this word effectual sometimes and talk about regeneration of the new birth. We, we tell people we believe in the effectual call. Now that's, 
effectual call, that two, those two words like that are not in the Bible, but certainly the principle, the truth of it is. We believe in the effectual call, just like when Jesus called Lazarus from the grave, was it effectual or was it not effectual? Was there a hesitation? Was there a delay? Or did Lazarus not even come out of the grave? Of course, Bible readers know that he did. He came out instantly because that was an effectual call that Christ gave. He spoke to him personally, he spoke to him individually, and he called his name, and he came right out of that grave. That's what happens in regeneration. When God calls one of his children from a state of death and sin to a state of life in Christ, it's instant. It's never failed. And there's never a hesitation. There's never a delay. He knows them personally, individually, like he did Lazarus. And he calls them, and they respond. That's effectual. Now, he says the effectual, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man. The word fervent has reference to great passion like fire, heat. We're commanded in the Word of God to love one another with a fervent love, that we're to have fervent charity one to another. You should be able to tell when true charity is being expressed. It comes uh, with conviction, in other words. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, a man of righteous character, it avails much. And then we find where the Lord gives us an example of this. And it's Elijah. He's referred to as Elias here in the New Testament. It's Elijah, the son of consideration. We'll go back begin to study his life, we understand what he's talking about. We go to 1 Kings chapter 17, the first time that Elijah is mentioned. We find he comes before a wicked king named Ahab and declares to Ahab that from that time forward there be no dew nor rain upon this earth according to his word. Now notice, not only rain but also dew. Dew was very important in biblical days in the land of Palestine. For there be no dew and there be no rain. Now, we're not told specifically here about Elijah's prayer, but James tells us he did. See, Israel was under great judgment this time because Ahab and his wife Jezebel had led the Israelites into gross idolatry, led them away from God, where they departed from God, entered into all kind of ungodly and immoral behavior and practices, and idolatry, and led them away into that. And God's judgment came upon them. We find Elijah here praying for a nation, not praying for a person, praying for a nation. And he prayed it wouldn't rain. Stop raining. That's effectual, isn't it? That's an example of the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. He prayed it wouldn't rain anymore. It stopped raining. Now, I'm sure they didn't think much about it in the beginning, Ahab and them. A few days went by. A week or two went by. A month went by. Things begin to get serious. Without the rain, there can be no crops. You can sow all the seed you want to, but if it receives no rain, it won't come up. There'll be no harvest. Things begin to get serious. Now, in the 19th chapter of 1 Kings, excuse me, the latter part of uh, chapter 18, you're going to find where Elijah goes on top of Mount Carmel. And Elijah is going to pray for it to rain. Now, I want to say this about prayer. Uh, if we're going to pray, we have to do it by faith. And Elijah was a man of great faith. But we also need to pray according to the knowledge we have of God. 1 John 5, 14 comes into play here. This is the confidence that we have in Him. Him is God. This is the confidence we have in Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. And if we know that He heareth us, then we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. When you pray, it's important that you be knowledgeable in your prayers. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, says, I pray in the Spirit and I pray with understanding. I sing in the Spirit and I sing with understanding. We need to understand what we sing. If what we sing is not biblical, we don't need to sing it. If the words of a hymn we sing are not in harmony with the truth of God's word, we need to lay it aside. I don't care how much you might think you like it. If it's not biblical, if it's not truthful, it shouldn't be sang. And when we pray, we pray in like manner. We're to pray according to the will of God. Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians, be ye not unwise, understanding the will of the Lord. How are you going to understand the will of the Lord? You've got to be a Bible reader. You've got to sit on the sound of the gospel. You've got to be acquainted with God's word as much as possible. You need to be involved in the house of God, filling your seat, hearing the wonderful gospel of Christ proclaimed. 
That's part of the armor you put on against Satan, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. How are your feet going to be shod and be protected if you're not under the sound of the gospel on a regular, steady, consistent basis? That's why Paul said in Romans 12, 2, be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed what is might prove was that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. God's will is good, it's perfect, it's acceptable. But he starts off in verse 1 like this. He says, we're not to be conformed to this world, but we'll be transformed again. And he says, present your body a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Church attendance is serious. Church involvement, church attendance is very serious. We're to fail not to assemble ourselves together in the house of God. And so, Prayer, to be really effectual and fervent and to avail, must be words that we express to God as we communicate with God, communicate with heaven. By faith without faith, it's impossible to please God. And it needs to be in harmony. Now, we go back and look at the first verse of 1 Kings 18, and the Lord tells Elijah he's going to send rain. That's before he prays for it. So as he's praying for rain, the latter part of 1 Kings 18, he's got the knowledge of God's will. The knowledge of God's will is, I'm going to send rain. Now, Elijah's praying for the rain. Elijah is on top of Mount Carmel. The Bible says that he was on his knees, put his, hands, his head down between his hands and his knees in, in a posture to indicate, I think, how he felt on the inside. And he tells his servant, look out over the sea and tell him what he sees. And he says, I don't see anything. He did that six times. He saw nothing six times in a row. He says, go again, time number seven. And you know the number seven is the number of completion and perfection in the Word of God. So he goes, time number seven. He comes back with this report. I see a cloud, a little cloud, he says, like a man's hand. What was Elijah's response? He told Ahab to get down from the mountain for because I hear the abundance of rain. <laughs> and the Bible says a great storm came up, great clouds came up, and a great rain came up. All that came out of a little cloud. And Elijah believed that little cloud was going to produce this great abundance of rain because God had already told him, I'm going to send rain. That's three and a half years later than what we mentioned a while ago in 1 Kings 17. Now these are the two prayers that James tells us about over here concerning Elijah. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, it avails much. I, I'd, say, I'd say so, wouldn't you? If somebody prays not going to rain, don't rain for three and a half years, that, that's pretty, pretty good results. Then he's going to pray it's going to rain, and lo and behold, it rains just like he prayed for. I'd say the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, it avails much. See, this will be one of the most encouraging texts in the Bible concerning prayer for you and for me. The power of prayer. Man started out his, in history with manpower. Then he wound up with horsepower. Next thing you know, there's dynamite power. Now today we talk about atomic power. But something has always existed from manpower to atomic power, and it's prayer power. And that's what we have in this verse here. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias, a man of like passions, don't think he was an elite don't think he was such a category that God would hear his prayer and wouldn't hear yours. That's why he tells you that. Elias was a man of like passions like you and I. No different you, no different myself, but he was a righteous man. And the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I read about a prayer of a righteous man one time. In the book of Luke chapter 22, the Lord Jesus Christ comes to the apostle Peter. And he says unto Peter... He says, Satan had desired to have thee to sift thee as wheat, but I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. Now Peter will deny the Lord three times, but his faith remained. We see that after the cross. Jesus said, I have prayed for thee. There's a righteous man praying. Would anybody deny that? <laughs> Here's the effectual firm prayer of a righteous man. I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, yes, he will need to be converted. Because he will deny the Lord three times, but in the end he will confess him three times and become the wonderful apostle we read about, especially the first 12 chapters of Acts, and he writes First and Second Peter. There's the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. In the first chapter of Luke, there's a man by the name of Zacharias. Zacharias has a wife by the name of Elizabeth. And they 
are godly people. They are ministering in the temple. And the Bible tells us they were old and well stricken in years. As I've told you before, it means they were really old. That's what it means. They've gone beyond the old stage. Now they're real old. But they're still living. They're still ministering. And they're still praying. And an angel shows up and tells Zacharias, he says, Thy prayer has been heard. Elizabeth, thy wife, is already called barren, is going to conceive and bring forth a child. That's John the Baptist. I'd say that was effectual, wouldn't you? Did it happen? She sure did. Elizabeth conceived when she was old and well stricken in years, when by nature it was impossible for her to have a child. And notice it says, Thy prayer. The angel says to Zacharias, thy prayer. I'm not sure Elizabeth was praying for it. <laughs> she might not have wanted to have a child in her old days. You know, when she was old and well stricken in years, but apparently Zachariah did. And maybe she's embraced too, but the Bible does say thy. It didn't say, you know, the prayers of both of them. It says, thy prayer has been answered. And Elizabeth shall conceive and bring forth a son. That's, again, John the Baptist. It came to pass just exactly like the Lord said. Over in the 10th chapter in the book of Acts, there's a man by the name of Cornelius. He's a Gentile. He's a centurion. And the Bible says he was a just man. It says he a man who feared God with all of his house. He gave alms to the people and he prayed with all his house. A praying man. In the opening verses, Acts chapter 10, an angel comes to Cornelius. It says to Cornelius, thy prayers and thine arms. Now notice two things. Thy prayers and thine arms have come up for memorial before me. That means your prayer is now going to be answered, Cornelius. Now we're not told exactly what Cornelius was praying for, but by studying the rest of Acts chapter 10, I think it becomes obvious. Because God's going to send the Apostle Peter to Cornelius' household, and Cornelius is going to hear the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter's going to preach the wonderful, miraculous, amazing gospel of Jesus Christ under Cornelius, his prayer and his alms. Now, alms was the giving of gifts, especially those who were in the needy category. He excelled at that. His prayers and his alms both had come up before memorial before God. God now is going to answer his prayer, and he sends an angel to tell him so. I said, that's the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man. Wouldn't you? And it availed much, did it not? Because that's exactly what took place and what happened. And in the end, Cornelius and his household will end up being baptized into the fellowship of the saints of God. I don't know of a greater blessing than that. In the 12th chapter in the book of Acts, there are two apostles, James and Peter. And James is going to be the first apostle to die a martyr's death. First one to die, period. He's going to be slain by the sword of Herod. Peter's going to be placed in prison. And he's, uh, he's in the innermost prison. His, his hands and his feet are shackled. And there are soldiers beside him. Now, while all this is happening, something else is happening. The church of Jerusalem that day have met, and they met that day in, in a house. They didn't meet in a building like this. The church existed in people's homes. And they're in the home of one of the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Bible says they were praying without ceasing. That kind of sounds like to me it must have been fervent. sounds like to me, uh, you know, it, it, they were very serious. You go back to Elijah there in James chapter 5. When he says he prayed it would not rain, I missed this a while ago, it says he earnestly prayed that it would not rain. Earnestly, sincerely, with passion, conviction, that it would not rain. It didn't rain. They're praying for the apostle Peter without ceasing. God hears those prayers. God sends an angel. The angel comes, smites Peter on the side of the face to wake him up. <laughs> Peter is just sleeping under those circumstances. <laughs> he wakes him up. He tells him to arise, and the chains fall off his hands and feet. He says, gird thyself, put on thy sandals, and follow me. And he followed Peter out of that prison. They come to some iron gates. The Bible says the iron gates just open of their own accord. And he walked out to the other side. And when Peter came to himself, he recognized that God had sent the angel and had saved his life, had delivered him out of that prison. Sounds like to me those people praying in the church in that day were praying you know, uh, they were praying without ceasing. 
Sounds like to me, must have been some righteous people in that congregation. At least one for sure. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We find that he experienced a great deliverance. In the book of 1 Samuel chapter 1, there's a woman by the name of Hannah. Hannah is married to a man who also has a couple of other wives. And they are very fruitful and they're bearing children, but Hannah doesn't have a child. And several years go by. And the Bible says that Hannah reached a point where she went to the Lord and she poured out her soul to God. I want you to notice that expression. She poured out her soul to the Lord. And she prayed without verbally expressing it because Eli saw her, but he didn't hear her. And he saw her lips. Her lips were moving. And we find where he comes to her and he, has, he doesn't recognize what's going on. He thinks she's been drinking and been drinking too much. And she tells him, not so. And she tells him what's going on. She tells him why she's praying, what she has done. And after she explains it all to Eli, Eli wishes her well. And she goes on her way. And I want you to notice this. She went on her way. And it says she was at peace. You know why she was at peace? Because she poured out her heart to God. That's why she was at peace. When you've done all you can do, pray to one who is not restricted now you don't need to do all you can do before you pray I'm just saying when you pray to God he's not restricted he's not hindered right and so she prays and she just pours out her heart and after she pours her heart out about this matter it seems to me she was totally reconciled whatever happens happens if God doesn't bless me to have a child I just won't have a child but God hearkened her words and her husband knew her, and she had a child, be one of the most famous men in Israel's history by the name of Samuel. Why? Because the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man, when the Bible says man, it's not restricted just to a man. It has reference to all God's people, men and women. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man, a righteous person, a righteous, one of God's righteous children, has a righteous character, living a godly life, living a life close, life close to God, walking with God, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now I want to take you to the 10th chapter of the book of Joshua. In the 10th chapter of the book of Joshua, we're going to find where there's some people called the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites, first of all, in the 9th chapter, have come, they live in the land of Canaan. Now at this time, Joshua was leading Israel. He led them across Jordan's river into the land of Canaan. They conquered the city of Jericho. They conquered the city of Ai. And the Gibeonites hear about this. They know about this. And they come up with a plan how they want to, uh, you know, uh, be real close to Joshua and the Israelites. So they come to Joshua and them in deception. They, take, they put on old shoes. They put on clothes and shoes. They make them look even older than what they are. And they take fresh baked bread and they, and they prepare it somehow or another. It has a, a, a moldy substance on top of it. And, uh, and they come to Joshua and them and says, we come from a far country. When in reality, they were next door neighbors. But Joshua and them are new in the land. Joshua and them don't know this. So they deceive them. And they said, we just want to be part of you. We want to make a league with you. And here's a verse I want you to pay close attention to. It says, and the people, the men of Israel, partook of their victuals without asking counsel of God. They didn't ask counsel of God. If they'd have went to the Lord about this matter, God would have revealed what had just happened. Those Gibeonites, he would have shown them, these people are not who they say they are. They've lied to you and they have deceived you. But they took of it without asking counsel of God. Now, every time we do something in life and we fail to ask God first, we fail to ask counsel of God, we have similar results, do we not? How many times have you said something? How many times have you done something? How many times have you decided something? Something small, something big, something minor, something major, it doesn't matter. And you just did it all on your own. And then after you did it on your own, you decide, well... 
Maybe I want to ask God about it. See, people fall in three categories. There are those who do just what I said. They research it out. They look into it. They investigate it, et cetera, et cetera. And they get it all set up. And then there's a category of people who do the same thing. But in the end, they ask the Lord to come in and bless it. And then there's a category of people who ask God for the plan to begin with. Don't plan outside of God. That's what some people do. Then some people plan and bring God at the end of it. And then there are those who ask God for the plan to begin with. If God gives you the plan, I believe you have the assurance God will bless the plan. And you'll be in a lot better shape. I can assure you that. They took the victuals of those Gibeonites that brought it over there without asking counsel of God. And three days later, they find out they were their neighbors all along. They deceived them. They lied to them. Joshua and them were not happy about it, but Joshua and them had made a promise. They made a league with them that they would take them in to where they were at so they don't go back on it. But Joshua did make them servants. And he put, uh, you know, pretty heavy task upon these Gibeonites. And that's the background going into chapter 10 of Joshua. There's five kings in the land of Canaan who hear about all this. The five kings. Now, why did the Gibeonites, first of all, why did they want to make a league with Joshua? Because they had heard what Joshua and them had done to the city of Jericho and to the people of Ai. You remember those great victories, the victory at Jericho, then Ai? Well, that news got out, and the Gibeonites said, you know, we might better make peace with these people right here. If they had just come and been honest and truthful, they probably could have done it all right to begin with. But they came deceitful, they came lying. And because Joshua and them didn't ask counsel of God, they wound up having to take them in. But now there's five kings in the land of Canaan, and they hear about three things. They hear about the destruction of Jericho. They hear about the destruction of the city of Ai. And they also heard about how the Gibeonites had made a league with Joshua and the nation of Israel. And they said, let's all get together. Let's all get together, and we will do battle against the Gibeonites. And it says, we will take them captive because they're important people, they're a strong people, and we don't need them making a league with Joshua and the Israelites. And it says, we need to capture them. And so that's the battle plan, and the Gibeonites hear of it. Now, what do they do? They, they do what I need to do and you need to do. I want you to notice this because I believe this is a picture of a pattern here of how the Lord's people, when they're facing difficulties, facing challenges, facing threats and intimidations, etc., etc., have what they're to do. See, the Gibeonites came to Joshua. You know what the word Joshua means? It means salvation. The word Joshua in the Greek over here in the New Testament means Savior. It means Jesus. That's why you read his name there in the book of uh, Hebrews chapter 3, uh, it's obvious to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ because of uh, Joshua. The word Joshua in the Greek is the same as Jesus. The word Joshua in the Hebrew means salvation. So they come to the one who has salvation. They come to Joshua. And the first thing they say to Joshua is this. They say, we be thy servants. And when I pray to God, I hope I pray to him like that publican in Luke chapter 18. I never want to approach the throne of God's grace like that Pharisee did. You know the story. The Pharisee and the publican go up to the temple to pray. They go together to pray. They go to the right place. They go to do the right thing. But then we find the Pharisee praying first. He says, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like other men like this publican over here. He says, I fast twice in a week. I give tithes of all I've got. I'm not an unjust man. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not an adulterer. Five times use the word I in a 34-word prayer. But the puffin just smites himself on the breast and says, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. That's the way to approach God in prayer. Hebrews 4.16 tells us, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. These Gibeonites have a time of need. And they approach Joshua and they come and the first thing they say to Joshua, we be thy servants. How many times do you read about the Apostle Paul in his letters that he wrote? where he expresses who he is. He says, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was a great apostle. He wrote 14 of 27 books of the New Testament. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. 
He was very instrumental in starting churches, organizing churches, um, and then going back and strengthening those churches. He, he's perhaps the greatest man in church history. Every time he prayed, every time he wrote, he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. That's what, if I'm what I need to be, I need to be a servant. You need to be a servant. We need to all be servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's the first thing we acknowledge. Number two, we find those Gibeonites informed Joshua what's going on. They poured out their heart to Joshua. They informed Joshua what was, what was happening. They informed Joshua that the other five kings of the Canaanites had banded together and were coming and trying to take them into captivity. And then they asked Joshua for help. It's okay to ask the Lord for help, brother. Why <laughs> wouldn't you ask the Lord for help? Psalms 46, verse 1. The Lord is our refuge and a very present help in the time of trouble. Love Hebrews 13, 4 and 5. Let your life be without covetousness. It says, you know, for whom shall we fear? That we might remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ when he says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. For the Lord is our helper. The Lord is one of the things God specializes in. He specializes in helping God's people. Whatever you're facing, whatever you're looking into, whatever's happening in your life, God specializes as your helper, so utilize him as your helper. Lord, I need help in making this decision. Lord, I need help in taking care of this. Lord, I need this. I need that. Now make sure it's a need list and not a want list. That's a big difference in that. So you go to the Lord and he says, now help us. And then he said, come quickly, urgently. How long does it take the Lord to come to where you're at? <laughs> you know, you might get a phone call from your child. It may take you a half a day to get there, but you'll go. It may take you a half a day to get there. Could take you a day. Could take you some more than that, depending on where they live. Somebody that's close to you, a friend, uh, somebody that's dear to you, that you love, may reach out for help. It may take you an hour, a few hours to get there, but you do the best you can. How long does it take the Lord to get there? He's there instantly, isn't he? Any he everywhere present, nowhere absent? The Lord is a very present help in the time of need. He's, a, he's our refuge and very present help in the time of trouble. These Gibeonites are in trouble. They come to Joshua's where they should have come. They, they claim to be his servants, which they were. They lay out the circumstances, which you should. You say, Lord, uh, uh, Brother Ronald, doesn't the Lord already know what, I, what I'm facing? Yes, he knows it. But he wants you to tell him about it and do you some good to tell, you, tell him about it to begin with. He wants you to tell him about it and then the Lord will hear. And what you fail to tell him, he already knows. That's one good thing about it. You know, sometimes in preaching, I've told Brother Tim this and others. You know, when I get through preaching, a lot of times I review back what I've said and I can't believe what I didn't say that I wanted to say. But then I thought, well, they don't know it. Only me and the Lord know it. You only know what I did say. You don't know what I didn't say. So uh, it makes me feel a little better. Then I'll say it next time. It'll hold. It won't mold. It won't ruin. <laughs> and so Tim will get through and I'll be talking to him, going over, kind of trying to help him. And he said, oh, I forgot to say this. I said, don't worry about it. They don't know a thing about it. They don't know a thing about it. <laughs> they only know what you did say. They don't know what you didn't say. <laughs> And it'll hold for another time, you see. So they speak all these things to Joshua. What did Joshua do? Joshua immediately responded. Joshua could have said, well, you know how you deceived us. You know how you lied to us. You know how you came to us in, in great deception. Well, you just do the best you can. He could have said that. Now, has the Lord ever said that to you? When you've gone to him, has the Lord ever said, well... You shouldn't be in this mess to start with. As the Lord ever said, well, you know, you made your own plans. You made your own bed. Go lay in it. And the Lord never has told me that. Other people have. <laughs> the Lord never has told me that. Let's take a look at this. Joshua responds immediately. There's no hesitation. There's no delay. And he's going to have to travel from, from 
to, to Gibeon, from where they're at, from Gilgal to Gibeon, and it's a long journey. They have to travel all night long. Now, this is part of the story, so remember this. They have to travel all night long to get there. Well, they're, they're not traveling in a plane or a train or cars. They're on foot. They have to travel all night long to get there. So when they get there, they're going to be tired and they're going to be weary. It says, Joshua ascended from Gilgal. He and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And then notice in verse 8, the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not, for I have delivered them into thine hand. There shall not a man of them stand before thee. That's kind of like a reiteration of a promise he made to Joshua after Moses died that you read in Joshua chapter 1. In verse 5, here's what God said to Joshua. He says, I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. He said, there shall not a man stand before you as long as you live. Now Joshua has that promise. Now God reiterates it. He says, fear not, Joshua. Fear not. For I have delivered them into thine hand. There shall not a man of them stand before thee. Now this is not one of his soldiers, not a captain or somebody that's telling him, okay, Joshua, we'll take care of all this. No, it's the Lord himself saying it. He tells him to fear or not. Why should he not fear? Because the Lord's going to be with him. And no man can stand before him. And he's going to deliver him. Joshua suddenly in the end came upon them suddenly. And went up from Gilgal all night. They've been traveling all night. This was the plan. They caught him by surprise. They came upon him suddenly in nighttime. And then notice verse 10. And the Lord discomfited them before Israel. And slew them in a great slaughter at Gibeon. And chased him along the way that goeth up to Beth Horon and smote them to Azekah and unto Mechadah. And it came to pass as they fled from Israel and were in the going down to Beth Horon that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah, and they died. They were more which died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. Now, there's three things about these hailstorms I want you to think about. First of all, the size of them. Now, I've heard, uh, you know, when it's, when you may have seen hail. I mean, we've all seen hail at one time or another, but I've never seen hail as big as some people have who say it hailed as big as golf balls. I've heard it places where it hailed it as big as baseballs, beating out car windows, one thing and another. These hailstones here were large. Number two, they came down with such great force and such great volume that they slew the enemy with the force that they had. I've never heard of anybody being killed by hell, by a piece of hell. Have you? Maybe they have. I've never heard of it. I've heard of great damage done by hell. I've never heard of anybody being killed by hell. But every one of these soldiers right here, they were all killed on this occasion by hell. And more were killed by the hailstones than perished by the sword. The third thing that's astonishing about this is that not one Israel soldier, one Jewish soldier was hit by any of the hell. Not one. God pinpointed it. God opened his arsenal in heaven, his artillery in heaven. He sent the hailstones. They came down large and with great force and slew the enemy. And not one Israelite soldier was hit. Now, if you go back and read in the book of Exodus chapter 10. Well, we back up uh, chapter 9. You're going to find where God sends 10 plagues among the children of Israel, uh, among the Egyptians while Israel's down in Egyptian captivity. Plague number 7 was the plague of hell. God said, I'm going to send a great hell. He said, it's going to be such a great hell that nobody's ever heard of anything like this since the beginning of time. And he warned them all ahead of time, get you and your people and your family and your animals Inside. And the Bible says, all those that hearken to the Lord, gather their families inside, their animals inside, and they were protected. And all those that didn't hearken to the Lord and didn't come inside, their animals and all, the people were slain, the animals were slain, they were all slain. What made the difference? Somebody took the Lord seriously. Somebody hearkened to the Lord, somebody listened to the Lord, somebody took the Lord seriously. And they were spared. But those that did not, 
were all slain. Now, it'd be mighty tempting to jump a second rabbit right here and head after him. But I'm not going to do that. I don't think. Anyway, the Lord Jesus Christ closed out the Sermon on the Mount like this. He said, I like that man who heareth my sayings and doeth them to a wise man. And when the storms came and the wind blew and the rain came, the house stood firm because it was built on a solid foundation. But I like that man who heareth my sayings and doeth them not to a foolish man. And when the storms came, he built his house on the sand. When the storms came, the wind blew and the rain came, his house fell all apart and was destroyed because he didn't have a solid foundation. You got the wise and you got the foolish in Matthew 25, you got ten virgins, five are wise and five are foolish. And the five wise had their lamps and their oil. The five foolish had lamps and no oil. And the foolish come to the wise. And they say, give us some of your oil. And they said, not so, lest we not have enough ourselves. Go and buy for yourself. So while they're going to buy oil, they should already had. The bridegroom comes at the midnight hour. The wise, five, five wise virgins go in with him. And the five foolish are left out. Those who hearkened were spared. Those who hearkened not were not. Now God sends a great hailstorm here. It destroys the enemy, but doesn't hurt or harm any of the army of Joshua. Now here's where the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man comes in. He's probably wondering when I was going to get to that. Well, I just got to it. Joshua chapter 10, verse 12. Then spake Joshua to the Lord. That always works. <laughs> it just always works. When all else fails, you talk to the Lord. <laughs> but you should talk to the Lord before all else fails. So Joshua talks to the Lord. Now why would Joshua talk to the Lord at this point? The Lord has already told him he's going to deliver him out of, uh, the enemy out of his hands. Not one man's going to be able to stand before him. The Lord's already discomforted the enemy one time, sent hailstones down another time, slew more with the hailstones, going to be slew, slew, uh, slain with a sword. But you see, I believe the day is getting close to darkness. And Joshua doesn't want any of the enemy to escape. If it gets dark before the battle is finished, then the enemy might escape through the darkness. So what does Joshua do? The Bible says... Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ahalon. Why would Joshua make such a request? He talked to the Lord. Now, we're not told what the conversation was. We don't give, are not given the details of this, but I think we have to assume here that Joshua got permission from God <laughs> to command the sun and the moon to stand still for additional daylight that he might have enough time to take vengeance on the enemy. And God gave it to him. And the sun stood still. And the moon stood still. Now notice, he didn't just speak to one. They, they were independent. The sun stood still and the moon stood still. Somebody said, that's just more than I can handle, Brother Lawrence. That's just more than I can believe. Let me tell you this. You either believe all the miracles of the Bible or you don't need to believe any of them. That's just the way it is. It's one way or the other. You can believe and accept every miracle of the Bible or I don't know how you can accept one if you can't accept them all. Because that's what a miracle is, a supernatural intervention of the providential, omnipotent power of God to where a normal event is no longer normal. And something happens that could not ever happen were it not for the miraculous intervention of God. If I don't believe this actually happened, then why would I believe in the virgin birth? If I don't believe in the virgin birth, I cannot believe in, uh, um, you know, blood redemption. If I don't believe in blood redemption, I cannot believe in the resurrection of Christ. If I don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, I don't believe in my own resurrection. Why would I believe I'm going to experience a resurrection one day if I don't believe some miracles in the Bible? The sun and moon stood still. You know, the galaxy in the universe has more parts than we can begin to think about here. And God can reach in and just stop any one part of it anytime he wants to. He can stop it easier and quicker than we can stop a watch from running. 
If an engineer of the train, if a human engineer of a train can pull on the brakes and slow the engine down and bring this train to a stop, don't you think the divine engineer in heaven, my friends, can bring something to a stop instantly? I'm telling you, we got a divine engineer in heaven. And he stopped it immediately. And gave Joshua and the army daylight savings time, if you please. This is not the only time God does something like this. Go back to the 10th chapter of the book of Exodus and you'll find plague number 9. What was plague number 9? God sent three days and nights of total darkness, so dark you could feel the darkness. If there are 72 hours of total darkness, so dark you can feel the darkness, then something out of the ordinary is happening up there in the sky. Right? In the 38th chapter of Isaiah, there's a man named Hezekiah. Hezekiah is really sick. And Hezekiah is told to get his house in order. He turns his back to the wall and prays. He prays to God. God sends a message to Hezekiah through Isaiah. He says, you tell Hezekiah, I've, seen, I've heard thy prayer and I've seen thy tears. Unto thee I'll add 15 years. There's the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, wasn't it? The Lord added 15 years to his life. But in that story, as you read this story, you're going to find where he gave him some evidence. And the evidence, he asked him the question, you want the sundial to go down X amount of degrees or the sundial to go back X amount of degrees? And Hezekiah says, well, it's just normal for it to go down, so send it back. You know what the Lord did? He sent it back. <laughs> he just sent it back. That means he had to stop the sun and reverse it. Somebody says, how can you do all that without causing gigantic chaos in all the world? I don't know. <laughs> and I'm really not worried about it. We got chaos anyway, don't we? <laughs> God doesn't have to do anything to bring more chaos. Man does that good. He excels in it. We have total chaos in the world, but there's no chaos in glory. There's no chaos in heaven. He spoke to the Lord. In the day when the Lord delivered them up and the sun stood still and the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Joshua? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hasted not to go down about a whole day. Now some have said that the Lord didn't stop it totally at one time but slowed it down to a degree where it took a lot longer for the go down. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. All I know is this, it says here he stopped it. And there was no day like that before it or after it that the Lord hearkened to the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Never before, never after that God hearkened to the voice of a man but he hearkened to the voice of this man he hearkened to the voice of this man named Joshua because Joshua was a righteous man. And the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And this righteous man prayed to God. He talked to the Lord. He, he didn't want the enemy to escape. Him, him and his men are tired and they're weary. And God had to give them extra strength too. He don't say that, but I know he had to give them extra strength. You know, I, I do not want to rust out in life. Some people just sit down and rust out. They think when they get old enough to retire, that means to sit on the can of do nothing and rust out. And then you can be in the category of those who give out. I don't want to give out. I want to wear out. But to wear out, I'm going to need some help along the way to keep from giving out. I'm going to give you three texts out of the book of Isaiah in closing this morning. I want you to remember. Isaiah 26 and 3. 
Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Trust in the Lord. For in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Where are you going to put your trust? In the Lord Jehovah. The last verse of Isaiah 40. He speaks about how the Lord never wearies and the Lord, the Lord never faints. And he tells us here that those that wait upon the Lord, and that's what Joshua did. Joshua waited upon the Lord. Those that wait upon the Lord shall be as eagles that mount up on wings. He says, they shall renew their strength. Those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Joshua and his men needed their strength renewed. They were tired. They were weary. They traveled all night. They've already been engaged in battle and warfare. You know they had to be absolutely exhausted. And Joshua could have said, Lord, we need to rest a while. Then we'll pick it up again tomorrow. <laughs> no, Lord, cause the sun and the moon to stop. I need a little more hours here. A little more time. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. And they shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk. And they shall not faint. Then we come to the 41st chapter of Isaiah. Verse 10. Thus saith the Lord, fear not. For I am with thee. Be not dismayed. For I will help thee. And I will strengthen thee and uphold thee by my righteousness. Now you take those three passages of scripture out of the book of Isaiah. They're just at apple today. as they were the day Isaiah wrote them about 2,700 years ago. Just at apple to me, apple to you, apple to our church right here. They that wait upon the Lord. And then waiting upon the Lord means you're serving the Lord. They that wait upon the Lord shall have their strength renewed. You know, that's why we go to sleep at night, to renew our strength, right? We go to sleep at night. We're tired. We're weary. We give out. Go to sleep at night. Hopefully we get up the next morning. We feel fresh. We feel renewed. We feel strong because we got a good night's rest. They that wait upon the Lord shall have their strength renewed. And they shall mount up with wings as eagles. And they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and shall not faint. You want to be able to get through this life without fainting? You want to get through this life without being so weary that you wind up sitting down and doing nothing? Then we need to wait upon the Lord. Trust in the Lord, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Fear not, because I am with thee. And be not dismayed, he says, I will help thee. And I will uphold thee by the right hand of my righteousness. Never had God before or God since hearkened to the voice of a man. But he did that day because this was a righteous man speaking to the Lord. And the most, the righteous man, of course, of all was Jesus Christ. And we know that every prayer Jesus ever answered, ever prayed, was answered. In John 17, the Lord prays. He says, Father, the hour has come, glorify thy son, he might also glorify thee, as thou hast given him power of all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. I'm going to tell you this morning, that was an effectual prayer. That prayer was answered. And all whom the Father gave to the Son will be with the Son in glory in heaven based upon the life of Christ and the prayer he prayed in John chapter 